This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And foraging for treats. Welcome to the show, Brett and Steph. I'm curious, of all the pitches that you get related to ag tech, are dairy startups a fairly small subset of those pitches, or are you seeing an increasing number of startups looking to disrupt dairy? We see a lot related somehow to cattle, whether that's dairy or meat or cattle. I think a smaller subset is specifically related to dairy. I don't know if Brett would agree. Yeah, I agree. We've seen a good number of companies that are focused on animal health. And like one interesting like issue with dairy cows has been mastitis. I've seen three or four or five startups that are targeting mastitis. And it's because it's a huge issue with the production of milk in those cows. And so, yeah, that's one big space. I asked that question because it seems that dairy is an industry that is just so ripe for innovation when it comes to how the industry manages its supply chain. Today, we're talking to the co-founders of Milk Movement, and I really love talking to them, not only to hear about the work they're doing, but (laughs) it was such an eye-opening look at the industry as a whole, and they are one of your portfolio companies. Yeah, you didn't read the name right, so I had to correct you there, (laughs) dude. It's Milk Movement. They've never met a cow pun they don't like. Good to know. If you go to their website, you will find some. Well, that brings us to our question of the day, which is, does dairy need a reset? Guys, this is probably not a real cliffhanger here since it's obvious that it does. But when you start to ask how and what the best way to approach it is, the conversation really starts to get interesting. There are so many aspects to the dairy supply chain that I don't think people think about from not only how you're getting the milk, how you're keeping animals healthy, how you're transporting, how you're storing, how you're paying, how you're communicating to different buyers. It becomes actually fairly complex when you start thinking about different ways to improve it. It was such an education for me. I had no idea that it wasn't too long ago that they were using fax machines and phone calls for communication in the industry. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. Indoor farming company Gotham Greens just raised $310 million in its Series E round. It's the company's largest funding to date, and it plans to use the money to bring more products to more customers across the U.S. as the company continues to build new greenhouses. Brett and Steph, investor dollars are beginning to dry up. No doubt this infusion of cash should help keep Gotham Greens going strong for now. But how does the current economic state factor into how a company like this might approach the next year or two? I'm not involved in Gotham Greens in any way, shape, or form. I imagine that they have to be thinking some sort of exit here, either IPO or acquisition after a round of this size and this stage and Series E. And they've been around for a long time. It's one of the reasons you're seeing late stage deals dry up right now or in you know 2022. You're seeing some put more capital on their balance sheet like Gotham Greens. This might not have been planned. They might have had enough to get to IPO. And now they're thinking, well, we need to grow for a few more years until public markets are a little bit better for us. And they're also dealing with a physical product, both in terms of how they're growing and then what they're selling from those farmhouses. And so I think they do need a huge amount of cash. 
Well, next, farmers and researchers are experimenting with using solar panels over active agricultural land, according to Axios. The case for solar power is clear as the world tries to reduce its dependence on fossil fuels. Yet there is a finite amount of land that could be used for solar production. So putting agricultural land into that mix would help extend that production. And farmers could potentially benefit by getting some extra money by farming for solar power, so to speak. The way it works is solar panels are installed over crop and they generate electricity that can be sold to an energy supplier or fed into the power grid. But there are challenges. The upfront costs of installing the panels can be prohibitive. Plus, there are obstacles like trying to drive a tractor in and around those panels. Brett and Steph, do you think that farmers would buy into this? Steph, if you were driving a tractor on solar panels, do you think you could do it? I could drive a tractor anywhere. (laughs) One of the things that confuses me about this is plants need sunlight to grow. That's what I was wondering. I imagine that they're like mechanical where they go up during the proportion of the day or portion of the season. They go flat again for portions of the season as I imagine what's happening. I mean, this isn't new, like using agricultural land to create energy, like windmills. There's been long been an industry around putting wind generated power on agricultural land where farmers rent out and portions of their land to other people who basically it's a leasing. They lease land space for a windmill and they create power that way. So this isn't new. It's just a different form of alternative energy. So as long as it doesn't affect their ability to grow the crop, I imagine that it could. it's very reasonable. Yeah. The big question is, does it affect yield and does it affect labor and process for actually harvesting crops? I bet a DD can drive the hell out of a tractor. Yeah, that's a very ambitious thought, Brett. I don't think so. I need small cars. No. <laughs> Well, finally, beer makers and drinkers around the country are feeling the pain of a beer supply crisis. Brett likes the story. Besides inflation and overall supply chain delays, the beer industry is also getting hit by a national carbon supply shortage. The shortage was sparked by natural contamination at Jackson Dome, which is a Mississippi reservoir of carbon dioxide from an extinct volcano. Small and independent craft brewers are getting hit the hardest, according to Axios. But some brewers who are using tech to capture natural CO2 from the brewing process itself might be well positioned to benefit from the market forces. Does this hit home for you guys? I think the part that hits home is the supply chain issues, right? Where we're seeing them across not only beer, but food supply chain and building materials and all sorts of things where it's identifying problems when you have single sources or main sources for things. And it's both surprising and not shocking at all. I am a big fan of the craft brewery space. I like craft beers. And I like visiting craft breweries. It is like, is this the thing that like when if you have shortages and supply chains and environmental issues that are causing shortages and things like that is like a beer shortage potentially what gets the rest of the world behind like a more sustainable supply chains like maybe that'll do it maybe it's a shortage of LaCroix who also takes bubbly or any other bubbly waters maybe that'll get more people like thinking about this stuff so that would affect me yeah I mean you know if you don't have CO2 you can't put bubbles in lots of things and so I think that a lot of people would if that does occur, it'll be a major catastrophe for the United States and the United States consumer. Steph, I'm with you. That would affect me if there was a shortage of bubbly water. Well, coming up, does dairy need a reset? We'll chat with the founders of Milk. Help me, guys. Movement. You got it that time. You may never have heard the names John King and Rob Forsythe, 
But there's a good chance the work they're doing will someday impact something in your fridge. The pair launched Milk Movement, which is a digital platform which tracks everything along the dairy supply chain, from production to delivery. The work they're doing is wildly disruptive. Before they started their company, John and Rob say much of the business along the dairy supply chain was conducted through phones, fax machines, even snail mail. Milk Movement started in Canada, where John and Rob are from. But the pair say they'll have a quarter of the U.S. market this year. How did they do it? They both started off in Newfoundland, meeting in college and originally working in the oil industry before pivoting to dairy. Through it all, their childhood experiences in Canada still guide the work they do today. I'm John King. I grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada. As a kid, I was very into sports, like a good Canadian, played a lot of hockey. I was a goalie in hockey in a lot of days now in the startup land, I think, as our startup world as a team. And I think there's a lot of synergy beyond being a goalie and being a founder for a startup. There's a lot of last line of defense a lot of days, and I've taken a lot of that forward and I'm really, really excited, energized by the space and super excited to be making saves every day. Cool. How are you playing defense on a daily basis? Oh, I'm the last line of defense. So when things break in the middle of the night and it goes all the way up to the most highest authority levels, it's my phone that rings. I've got an AirPod in now for listening to this, and I've got an AirPod in when I sleep for when phone calls come my way. If there's a final problem that needs fixing, I'm typically the very first one to be called and usually the first one on the scene to rally our troops together in order to get us in the right space to make sure that everything is running smoothly and that we can keep dairy supply chains flowing effectively. Rob got the easy job. Hold on to that thought for a second because I want to get Rob up to speed now. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what were you like as a kid? Yeah, so I grew up in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which is another province in Atlantic Canada. Grew up a pretty normal kid, I guess. I think back my, I was the youngest of four. And so my parents always say that I, they thought I was going to be a lawyer because I argued constantly and always spun them in circles and somehow always got my way, which not to say that's what I do now, but in some ways we're very persuasive and we don't stop till we get the answer we want. And so I think also relates to what we do today. And then met John in St. John's. I moved to his hometown to go to college and that's where we met. And then here we are. As you were growing up, were you always interested in entrepreneurial things or did that come later? No, I don't think so. I grew up in a pretty traditional household. My dad was a businessman. My mom was a nurse. So there was no real entrepreneurs in my family. And really just I was actually going to go to med school and try that or law school and just do the traditional path. But interestingly, actually, I was assigned to do pre-med. I enrolled to do pre-med. And then like a week before school, I went to my mom and I said, I shouldn't be a doctor. And she was like, I was waiting for you to figure that out. <laughs> so I switched to business. And then I think for me, it was in one of my programs, we did a co-op at an entrepreneurship incubator that actually John's dad was the CEO, which is weird. So I worked for John's dad years ago. However, all of these founders were coming in and like, you know, one of these companies is exited for 2.3 billion. Like these were people coming in on Friday and just like getting me to do random work for them as a work term student. But it was more about just like their perseverance. And these were all regular people doing this. And so I think it kind of broke that myth for me that these are just all normal people who are running businesses. So after that, I got the bug. And then that's kind of where I got the entrepreneurship. You guys, were you always interested in cows? Always since the earliest days of your lives? No, there is a photo of me milking a cow on a farm young that my mom pulls out. But no, you, I always didn't spend a whole lot of time on farms. John, did you... 
we both spent a lot of time in oil working through our work terms, college, and then after graduation. And then we decided we had much brighter lights in the sexier industry of dairy and cows and that mood our names and off we went. So Rob alluded to it briefly. My dad started the first incubator in Newfoundland in the province in Canada. So we certainly had a lot of conversations around startups, business at the dinner table. I learned one thing from him. It was what a bad idea looks like. And did you say both of you guys worked in oil? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Because where you went to college was a town that was very oil-centric, right, in business? Yeah, absolutely. So ExxonMobil's Canadian headquarters is actually in St. John's, John's hometown. And, you know, relatively small university, less than 20,000 students, smaller business and engineering faculties. And so there was a really large project called the Hebron Project. And they were building an oil rig off the coast of Canada, a mega project. And so when you needed talent, you would look at your local economy and you, you had to go to the the university or the college, basically. So I worked for Exxon and Worley Parsons. I think John worked for Husky for a while and actually Exxon at a different time. And did you guys pivot to dairy and agriculture while you were in college? So while I was working in college, I did take a summer job stocking shelves. And that was honestly the first dairy gig that I had. Funnily enough, that's what got me the subsequent jobs in oil and gas. And I was not a very good worker at the big oil companies. But it sounds like you were a great worker stocking shelves because you came up with a very entrepreneurial idea. Yeah, so it was... On my first day on the job of stocking the shelves throughout, so I'd go supermarket to supermarket and essentially merchandise the shelves or put the new product up. And first in, first out to try and get the oldest product grabbed by people first was the plan, explained to me the approach, and they said, put the oldest product on the third shelf. And about five days into my job, I found that my third shelf was not moving product. Where it was really coming from was the fourth shelf. And so I asked when that procedure was in place. And the person who taught me said, I don't know, I learned it when I started here 15 years ago. So we went around and did a a little checking and that policy was more than 20 years old. And the population average height had grown a lot in that time. So we actually made a pitch to say, it should be the fourth shelf. This is going to move better. And they changed it and we tried it on the fourth shelf and we were moving that old product much more effectively than before. So they put that policy company-wide and it was that same story that did get me my first job in oil and gas. So John, what brought you back into agriculture? So after a couple of different jobs throughout the oil space, what I found was working for the big firms on massive projects just really was far too much of a small fish in a big pond for me. Really working my own ideas, what had gotten me the job in the first place in terms of a good individual idea, there was nowhere to actually deploy them in big oil that I found. So looking for something a little bit smaller that could actually provide impact and being in an industry where there was real tangible benefit rather than working in anything. And I was really fortunate to get brought back into the dairy space and get a job at the Dairy Farmers in Newfoundland, which was our local co-op. So you started working on the farms, is that correct? 
So I worked at the Dairy Cooperative. Canada is a little bit unique. We're the only supply managed country left. So every province in Canada has a dairy board, which essentially manages all the milk flow for that province. I was hired initially on a six-month contract to execute a land reclamation project in order to grow feed. So monitor all the land that was available and turn it into land that could be used to grow more feed. I was hired on a project that I tried out for six months and I ended up staying for a year and a half. What was your initial impression of the dairy industry? Oh, we had, there was no process and nobody knew what was going on. So this is what John was doing after graduation. Rob, can you bring us up to speed on where your path led after graduating? Absolutely. So I was in oil kind of through college and then right after graduating went on full time. I was on the supply chain side of oil, which is very different than dairy supply chain. But I think you'd still see when large incumbents have a hard time running an operation or a supply chain efficiently. And so I even think then you see, you know, what maybe project teams would get together and focus on and consider success wasn't really moving the needle a whole lot. But for me personally, I was one of 100,000 employees at this company. This company was also headquartered in the US. We're in Canada. I didn't have intentions to move there. And I was always, you know, just didn't think I wanted to spend the rest of my life there. I thought size was the issue. So I went to a smaller marketing agency in the city as well. Really cool people was doing sales with them. But they were about 250 employees. And I felt like I was having the same just internal issues as I was with 100,000. I think just wanting to leave my mark in some ways, wanting to like question process and find a better way, but just really had something that I owned myself. And then I decided to actually take a bit of time. It was my wife's idea because she could tell that I was not happy with what I was doing. So she said, why don't you go take some time and do your MBA, which in hindsight, you know, doing a second business degree three years later, might not have been the best investment. I did a lot of courses twice. However, what I think is the best investment was I was a month into that and John called me and said, I've got this cool company called Milk Movement. It's just me. We have one client, but I think this can go much bigger. Do you want to help? And that's kind of where we went. John, when you, we last left you, you were still working at the Dairy Board. So what prompted you to finally strike out on your own? So I actually got the first commercial drone license in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada. I got grandfathered in because I'd been flying drones for multiple years after the regulations started. So it was a really unique opportunity that I found myself in that said, I have this one commercial license that nobody else has or can get access to quickly. I knew I wanted to try entrepreneurship and I was given a golden ticket to go out on my own and give it a try. And at that time I had stacked up what was a lightweight solution that was monitoring the dairy supply chain for the dairy farms in Newfoundland and things were operating pretty smoothly. So I left and started Drone NL as the company. Still active today, still film weddings. We do industrial projects, lots of fun stuff. Did drone services, so not necessarily drone software or hardware, but we just did drone services. I did that for a year, myself and a partner, had a lot of fun doing it. And then about a year later, my old boss came back to me and said, we need to make some updates to the system. Would you be interested in that? So I took a little time and looked at the other opportunities along the chain. And I came back to him and said, would you be my first customer if I set up a company with a true web-based platform to provide actionable intelligence across the dairy supply chain? He said, yes. That was when we got our first customer before we wrote the first line of code, which was really exciting. And we kept going from there. How cool. And it sounds like you reached out to Rob pretty soon after you launched that company. Yeah, that's right. So I did the MVP kind of spent early mornings and late nights 
tacking it together, getting things going. We rolled out the first version uh, about eight months after that original meeting with my boss and, and things went really smoothly for Brett and Steph and meeting so many startups. I'm sure you've been through a lot of MVP rollouts and MVP rollouts can be messy. And tell us what MVP means for those of us who don't know. Minimum viable product. Sorry. Yeah. So it was the very first iteration and it was ugly for sure. But when we rolled it out, it worked and it worked well day one, which was really surprising. Were you guys one of the Techstars companies? So we had grown to a few customers in Canada and then we wanted to really tackle the U.S., so we looked at how do we get our brand as a Canadian, it's often hard to get your brand profiled in the US. We said, how do we get our brand profiled? We liked the idea of American investors who maybe saw things bigger than what we were used to. And so we actually ranked the accelerators that we thought were the best in the US. I think we ranked five. We got into four. We didn't do one, but we did three. And Techstars was, I think, the honestly, the one that had the most impact for where we are now, for sure. I do have a question, though, because you guys actually have a unique situation, and it's not something that we normally see, where the person that came up with the idea isn't the CEO of the company. And almost always, when a startup comes through, like whoever comes up with the idea is automatically the CEO, and that's just you know how it goes. Can you talk about the decision there, like how that was made? John, you came up with the idea, and then you approached Rob. Did you approach him as, hey, will you come be CEO? Or did you approach him as, will you come join the company? And then it later on happened, like, can you talk a little bit about like how that dynamic happened? Because it's really unique and interesting, I think. Yeah, for sure. So I don't know when we even talked about titles, but it wasn't at any point after joining that recently. It had to have been at least six months, maybe eight or a year. It was internal, external is the only conversation we had. And John knew that he needed to be in the business. And I think we said, well, then Rob's outside the business, (laughs) which meant, you know, communicating externally and meant sales and meant investment. And that's all it was for the first while. We were just co-founders and it was kind of internal, external is where we do the line. Over time, I think probably near the seed round or earlier, we said, oh, we need titles. By the time I'd met you, you guys had the titles. And so by 2020, was there any heartburn or was it like just an easy decision? I'm curious, like, was there any, like John on your side, especially, was there any heartburn on your side or was it like, no, this is right? Well, one of the values of the company is honesty over ego today. We certainly didn't have any written down values at that time, but we were getting ready to understand where they should be. And ultimately, I don't think there's a whole lot of time spent here internally in the doors of Milk Movement of what a title is. Everybody is expected to wear their heart on their sleeve, and I expect working our asses off. I hold myself to the same standard. I want to back up and ask you guys. Can you explain to us exactly what Milk Movement does and how it works? Yeah. So Milk Movement provides actionable intelligence across the dairy supply chain. Dairy is a complicated business. It's a 24-7, 365 business, and there's information moving back and forth at all times. Farms have to make a product that's obviously milk that's then transported on tractor trailers to processing facilities and then turned into final commodities that we enjoy today, whether it's going to be cheese, butter, fluid milk, or anything else along the stream. What Milk Movement does is it layers into the process as one true source of data. So throughout that journey, we will capture all the information that's relevant to the product. So that will include the amount of milk picked up as drivers are going to farms, the amount of milk dropped off, going to processing facilities, and what the quality of that product looks like. 
Once all that information is in our platform, we provide accounts for everybody along the supply chain to work together to understand what's going on, see insights of where there are potential issues along the supply chain, and provide potential resolutions so that we can make sure that the right milk is getting to the right place at the right time. We also provide the full financial backbone in terms of how payments are done, where customers are being invoiced for product, and how producers are getting paid. And we're super excited that we're able to support 20% of the U.S. dairy industry while working on our software and being the record of truth for those dairy supply chains. It is amazing that it sounds like this type of infrastructure wasn't really common within the industry before you guys developed it. Yeah. So one of the key things I was trying to get rid of honestly, was when I was working, one of the very first things I did was I was sending too many faxes and I had no idea how to send a fax. And I was sending too much physical mail to people. And I also wasn't very good at that and would put the wrong paycheck in the wrong envelope. And that was the business. I mean, there was a lot of manual stuff going around. And in an industry where the shelf life of the product is short and stuff goes wrong all the damn time, those methods of transporting data and sharing information just weren't working. Can we talk a little bit about what is going wrong in the dairy industry? You alluded to it. Is it spoilage? Is it loss of money? What are the big problems? And are they the same in the U.S. and Canada? So I'm not going to go off and say spoilage or loss of Money is the easiest thing to say, but there are certainly a lot of really interesting opportunities that are out there in the space. So some of the ones that we see as really a predominant next frontier for the dairy space is like many supply chains, it's important to note that dairy is unique because farms aren't factories. So understanding how to optimize your supply chain when what that supply is going to actually be is very hard to know is a difficult task. Today, there's no optimization around these things. And once one thing goes wrong in the supply chain, what happens next is very opaque. So Milk Movement really provides that layer to know what's going on and plan for what to do next, which down the line, of course, does increase efficiencies and provides more revenue. And there are a lot of cost centers along the way where we're able to help our users also reduce their costs. What is like the hardest part, right? You guys are like have 17,000 moving pieces, a bunch of different potential customers and people that you have to plug in. Like what agriculture in general has, like it's hard, it's longer sales cycles, things like that. Like what's been like the hardest or most surprisingly challenging part of building this company? What is one of our greatest opportunities also a lot of days feels like one of the greatest challenges. And that's that cows don't know it's Sunday, cows don't know it's Christmas, and this business ticks every second of every single day. So we are at any given point, our systems being used to manage tens of millions of dollars worth of product continuously. And what that means is we need to be doing our best for our customers every second of every day. As you look at dairy, what do you see in the future? What else needs to be disrupted? So we truly see a space where dairy is getting the right milk to the right place at the right time based on software and, of course, the hard work of people at every stage of the supply chain. We believe that dairy will be fully interconnected from start to finish. So when you go to the store and grab a block of Parmesan cheese, 
that information is fed into the system and works all the way through from the processor all the way back to the farm and the people that supply that farm in order to get just the right information through so we can get that product out to consumers right where they need it, when they need it, and make sure everyone is profitable and successful all the way through. Lightning round. I'm going to ask you questions. You got to give one word answers. We're going to get started with one that I think is a pretty easy one. What's your favorite city in the United States? San Francisco. Chicago. What's your favorite city in Canada? Montreal. Vancouver. No, no. What's the best city in Canada? Not favorite. Steph just adjusted my question for me. What is the best city in Canada? The answer to Steph's question, Vancouver. Your question, Toronto. Montreal for me. Oh. Who's smarter? John. Me. thousand percent. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Robert John. The better cow milker. Which one? It's got to be Rob. I've never milked a cow. Yeah, me. <laughs> What's a cow's favorite holiday? You mentioned that they don't like to take days off, but what is the cow's favorite holiday? Halloween. They like cow's gyms. I'm trying to think of a pun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> I appreciated that. Rob, this one's for you. Tougher to work with John or John's dad? Oh, John. I caught John's dad at the end of his career. He was sailing into retirement. (laughs) John's nodding along to this. One word, Rob. One word. You really messed that one up. What's your favorite dairy product? Cheese. Charlesburg cheese. Have you ever tipped a cow? No. Wouldn't dream of it. It's actually a problem. It's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Big here in the Midwest, you know, cow tipping. You know, those high schoolers, they should know better. That's all I got. You survived the lightning round. Thanks, guys. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Anshul, the CEO and founder of New Peak Robotics. Anshul, what are you building? What problem are you solving? We are solving the biggest crisis that's facing agriculture today, that's labor shortage. There are not enough people to work on farms, and about 70% of farmers are facing labor shortage. We solve this problem by bringing up a fleet of fully autonomous robots that have about the same dexterity as a human arm. So our hope is that we'll be able to help farmers initially by helping them pick their fruits on the farms by initially picking strawberries, but eventually automating all manual labor on farms and hopefully going beyond farms in the future and solving all manual labor tasks in the world. Tell me a little bit more about like why strawberry farms? Like what the heck did you start on strawberry farms for? Strawberries are this in this perfect zone where They are very difficult to automate because they are soft fruits, but they are very firmly attached to their stamps. So you need to be very intelligent in how you pick them without damaging them. So you're solving a lot of the big challenges that come with dexterous tasks that you have to perform in day-to-day world. And the other reason is financial. Strawberries are probably one of those specialty crops that pay you the most per pound when you pick them. What's your big vision? How are you going to take over the world? Our big vision is like the world I want to see. The world I want to live in the future is where kind of like we add a few more basic human rights 
to the list of human rights we have. So I think food, shelter, and internet should be added to basic human rights. We are kind of getting pretty close to the food part and the internet part, but to get close to the food part of like giving food security to everyone in the world, we need to make sure we live in a world where like pretty much all the work is done by robots. So I want to see a world where no one has to do a job they don't want to do. And everyone does the job that they feel fulfilled in. Today I'm here with Sarah, the CEO and founder of Digify. Sarah, what's the problem that you're solving at Digify? So it's really twofold, Brett. The first is for brands. So 95% of products are sold through retail and e-tail. That puts a third party like a Whole Foods between brands and their customers. So brands don't know who their customers are, and they're not able to reach them directly. The second is for consumers. So more than 70% of products are greenwashed, which leads to extremely low consumer trust. But millennials and Gen Zs are more than ever prioritizing products that are good for people on the planet. But it's really hard to verify products' claims and ingredients. So they also want to get information and quickly and easily understand more about products. And that's not readily available today. How are you guys solving that? Yeah. So how we do it is we activate physical products and marketing assets and we turn them into a digital salesperson. This allows us to create a two-way communication between brands and consumers. And this allows brands to foster a direct consumer relationship from any physical touchpoint. So let's just make it real for me, okay? I'm buying a box of Cheerios. Walk me through General Mills makes Cheerios. What do they do to their box of Cheerios to make it a advertising platform or to capture, to understand who the consumer is? And, and then what's the consumer doing to understand like, are these Cheerios actually gluten-free? So the way that Cheerios is going to create a page on Digify is they'll come in the platform, they'll build a QR code in our platform, and they'll connect it to a page. And that page will tell a story, tell a story of the product. It could have recipes for how to make some cool cereal product for the kids. It could verify the claims of that. But all of this is done basically in our platform when we connect to Cheerios existing commerce and marketing tools. We can connect to their verification platform that can tell a consumer, is this good for me? Is it good for the planet? And we're actually able to verify that. And then for the consumer, all they have to do is take out their phone and scan that QR code, and they'll be able to quickly pull up this page, which gives them the information they need at the moment they need it. How are you going to take over the world with this thing? So in three years, every product will be digified. We're really building a future for connected packaging or really any package today. And we're doing that by making the physical moment a digital experience instantly. So going back to the original question, does dairy need a reset? And if so, how? To me, it's less of a reset and it's more of modernization. Like that's one of the things that drew me into food tech and ag tech investing was that it's this huge industry that a lot of parts of it could use some modernization and digitization. And if you talk to any enterprise that plays in or around the food system, all of them have a digitization of the food system strategy right now. That's what this is. It's digitizing the dairy supply chain. And I think looking at their success, you can see that there's a huge appetite for this modernization. People within the dairy industry want this to happen. That's why Milk Movement now controls, what, 15% of the milk or touches 15% of the milk in the United States and it's only growing. Yeah, that was staggering to hear how much impact they're having. We'll see you back here next week.
Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.